And then from 1902 to 1903, we have the peak of what I've referred to in the notes as Shakespeare stuff. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> it's a whole dramatic mess. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. In case you missed it, this is part three of our coverage of the life of Marie Corelli. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, I recommend going back to listen to those now. We're picking up at an interesting point in Corelli's life where she starts to play the role of historical conservatist. And um, as our little kind of cold open told you, there's going to be a bit of drama. So it starts with... A man who wants to pay to put a memorial to his dead wife in, where is it? In the Memorial Theater, I think? Yeah, in the Shakespeare Memorial Theater. And so Corelli catches wind of this and is like, no, this, if anything, should be sort of like a sacred shrine to Shakespeare and we should be, well, okay, so let me backtrack. So, so the... The guy is trying to get his wife a, a fancy new ostentatious memorial at this location. But sort of in the background, Corelli's been trying to raise funds, or she has been raising funds, for a monument to Shakespeare. A bigger one. For, because for some reason, the people of Stratford-upon-Avon aren't super into Shakespeare. They're like, <laughs> eh. Yeah, this guy used to be here. Take him or leave him. Like, we... we which, like, you know, I get it, because you just gotta live your life. You don't want to live in some mausoleum to a dead author, right? But Corelli kind of barges in. She's tried- she thinks she's ingratiated herself with the locals. Now she's ready to get invested in local politics. And she starts with this memorial. So she says, no, this shouldn't be happening. She sort of writes press releases. She sends out letters. Um... Some of the townsfolk agree with her, others don't. It looks like she's going to lose the battle, but then she gets him sort of on a technicality. Um, so she prevents this memorial to this man's dead wife from getting put into the Shakespeare Memorial Theater. Um, and then she goes about her life, and the townsfolk kind of try to go about theirs. One journalist calls her a fairy stirring up the world. <laughs> um... To interject in the drama for just a second, in this period, Sarah Bernhardt visits Stratford-upon-Avon and actually stays at Corelli's house. So they were friends, just FYI. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> That's just sort of like the initial skirmish of what will become a full-on war. Um, because the town, sort of the town leaders, um, including one Arthur Flower, 
um, have been in conversations with Andrew Carnegie about getting him to fund a free library in Stratford-upon-Avon. And there are two sites that are initially sort of suggested for this free library, because Carnegie's like, all right, I got money to burn. Um, <laughs> as you do if you're a Carnegie. I kind of want to reform my reputation. For, yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to make myself look better as a billionaire steel worker guy. Uh, so he agrees. Technical term. <laughs> TM. Um, Sorry. Three. Yeah, so he's like, all right, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll build you a library. Um, and the townsfolk decide to basically, they choose, they choose the worst possible site, according to Corelli. They choose a site up the street from the house that Shakespeare lived in. And they're going to knock down a bunch of Elizabethan cottages in the process. Um, Mm. Corelli is not only interested in preserving Shakespeare's sort of legacy and the historical sort of um, remnants of that. She's also just interested in historical conservation, kind of generally speaking. Um, yeah, which kind of is interesting. It, it it really is. I mean, she's one of she's one of the first sort of famous people to be sort of aware of this issue, and possibly. Because she knows, like, oh, I'm I'm an author too. One day, my legacy might be in danger, right? Yeah, right. Like, she's the most, she's probably the most famous person writing at this time. Then she's, you know, not not that this is. She's certainly the most financially successful. Yeah, and at like, this time, not that this is a bad thing, but it's not entirely altruistic for her to want to preserve Shakespeare's legacy because it's also setting a precedent to preserve her legacy. Yeah, but there was a lot of resentment that built up after her initial sort of quote meddling um with the the memorial in the in the memorial theater and um she kind of knew that like it had sparked off some really sharp uh newspaper sort of opinion pieces um so she 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 had all the clues to know that her getting involved with this free library mess might be a bad idea but her friends kept her friends and fans kept sort of writing her and asking her to speak up on behalf um because she had other things she was thinking about books she was writing other projects she was doing and she sort of was like i don't know if i need to butt in here i want to but like it, it can't go well but eventually they convince her to do something and she writes sort of an op-ed about why this is bad and sort of sends it out to not only local newspapers, but national ones. Um, it's such a, yeah, it's it's such a kind of... If she had gotten... S- Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to... It's such a nuanced problem because... And you, you kind of get this when you read about it, is that she's not opposed to the library, which is how it's sometimes spun. Right. Like she's opposed to... The specific location because like yeah um we actually have a carnegie library in loughborough and it's lovely and it's a you know um well knowing that it's a uh that the carnegie libraries were mainly done by a billionaire to make himself seem less immoral for being a billionaire yeah it's still yeah a really nice resource to have and i don't think she would have yeah like i said i don't think she would have been opposed to it if it were in any other location yeah, and she made a point of saying that too, although you know, yeah. everything she said in the press got turned against her. 
But um, I think if anyone else, like if she had written to a celebrity friend and asked them to speak up about it instead of speaking up herself, think had anyone else said it, yeah, the following kerfuffle would not have happened. It's just that the locals did not, they viewed Marie as an outsider. And if you're from a small town, you know how this works. No matter how much you try to do to benefit the place you live, if you have not grown up there, if you don't have like generations of family from there, no one's gonna think, no one's gonna consider you one of them. Yeah. It's kind of like a fair, fair weathered, um, <laughs> fair weather townsfolk situation. So they view her as this meddling outsider. And that's, I think, largely the reason that what happens next happens next. Yeah. But I need to put a pin in this just really quickly to say, um, part of the trouble is that um, early on in her time at Stratford, she makes friends with this reverend. I'm forgetting his first name, but his last name is Bloom. So Reverend Harvey. Bloom, Harvey Bloom, um, is an aspiring because author. Because the entire time I was... So, so the entire time I was reading about Harvey Bloom, I wanted to call him Harold. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly why I, I was And the like, only reason I remembered him. Yeah, the only... Yeah. Sorry, so, go ahead. He's an aspiring author. He's an aspiring author and he lives next door. Um, and so at first she's like, oh yeah, let's be friends. I'll get some people to look at your books. And so she actually gets him. I don't know if he gets published, but he does get some editorial attention from major editors of the time. And um, his he and his wife's little girl um, hangs out with Corelli and Bertha all the time. Um, until one day she comes in and says, Miss Corelli, are you divorced? And it's like a bomb went off in the room. Um, because as Ransom notes in her biography, a divorce is like a stain you can't come back from if you're a woman in high society. It could literally yeah. ruin Corelli's career if this sort of rumor is allowed to take hold. And so she goes nuclear on the Bloom family, um, and basically from the from that time on, Bloom is like her number one enemy. Um, point number two that I need to make is that sometime in these previous years, and I think I mentioned this in in part one, um, Corelli becomes friends with Ellen Terry, um, who she actually convinces to come. And Ellen Terry is noted actress. Um, she plays primarily Shakespeare with. Um, Henry Irving's company uh, for many, many years. Um, so she's this renowned actress who performs Shakespeare, Shakespeare's works. Um, and she is friends with um, Corelli and actually comes to Stratford to play in the Memorial Theater a few times. Um, so when Corelli writes her op-ed, uh, Ellen Terry writes a follow-up letter to the newspapers in support. And that really, really gets people's attention. So a, a sort of press and legal battle ensues with Corelli and other conservationists trying their hardest to prevent this sort of what they call vandalism of Shakespeare's birthplace from happening. And um, it's bitter, it's long, it's drawn out, and eventually they they kind of lose, except that it's it's gotten to the point in the press that um, Flower and the other town leaders can't just flat out knock down the buildings um, without, like, national outcry. But they do build in that location, and they do um, 
tear down some things. So it's sort of this nobody wins scenario, but really um, Mm. Shakespeare and the kind of national heritage loses a little bit. And one thing that came out of this is that a local man decides to write a letter, not only to the local newspaper, but to the national newspapers, saying that the only reason Corelli is against this library is because she had planned, because it was a Carnegie library and not a Corelli library, and that she had planned to build her own free library on the same site. Um, So Corelli sues him for libel, (laughs) and she wins. But she says that she's not doing this for damages. She doesn't want the money. So... The jury finds in favor of her and um, awards the defendant one farthing in damages. And it's like the biggest diss ever. Like everyone's like, oh, that guy is such a loser. She's just doing this, you know, to prove that she's not some duplicitous like schemer, that she's really just trying to preserve national heritage. Yeah. Like, has such nonsense why yeah i just think it's kind of this it must have felt so dangerous as a queer woman to bring a libel case before the judge yeah in this like it's only been like eight years since oscar wilde's trial yeah sure so involving yourself with any of those systems is not necessarily the uh yeah the safest yeah way forward and it's also kind of like um, obviously, she's happy with only a farthing, like, um, compensation. But she also has to be happy with that, because otherwise she'll be seen as um, this huge mercenary who doesn't actually care about culture. She cares about mm-hmm. making money. Like, almost, if she had sued for more, it would have reinforced what he was saying, but in a slightly different way. Yeah. So, yeah, that's um, that's the Shakespeare stuff in a nutshell. Uh, it... It was like, if if you want to know more, I'd encourage you to pick up the Ransom uh, book because it is some capital, all caps drama, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but moving on from that, in 1904, this is whimsy. This is like the most whimsical part. And I think a lot of people might know this if you're familiar with Corelli. This might be one of the things you, one of the trivia you know about her. But she um, buys a gondola, like a legit gondola from Venice, and hires a Venetian gondolier to come. uh, I don't know the proper, like, verb to go with a gondola, to come pull her up and down the (laughs) Stratford or the Avon. I don't know, because I was going to say punt, but that's what what they do in, like, Oxford and Cambridge on those little boats they have there. Right, right. I know it's... I just know it's not paddle, but that's what my brain wanted to go with. But anyway, to go, like, convey her up and down the Avon River in a gondola, um, he, I don't, I don't remember quite why, but he ends up not, um, not being the best employee, and so he's kind of dismissed, and they hire, they have their butler do it, I think, I want to say. Let me double check that really quickly. Her gardener, Ernest Chandler, um, he not only does he now tend plants, he now is a gondolier, um, part time. <laughs> so <laughs> why not? Yeah. Um, and and just to sort of step back and take measure of uh, where she's at in her career at this point, as of 1904, 
Um, she has published 19 books, two booklets, and numerous articles and short stories. Her works have been translated into several languages and published widely across the world, but especially in the colonies in the U.S. And it's becoming basically impossible for her to keep up with all of this and write. So she decides to hire the preeminent literary agents, A.P. Watt and Son. And uh, according to all the sources that I've seen, this is like, she she regarded this as one of the best decisions that she ever made. Yeah. Um, this is also, I think, just noteworthy because it's only at the end of the 19th century that sort of the professionalization of authors happens to such an extent that like specialized literary agents start to actually exist at all. Yeah, I was going to say on the gondola front, people might be aware of it, A, because it's such a wacky out there story that it's fun, but also they might have seen the pictures because it was this big thing that essentially it's the equivalent of, you know, stars around Hollywood getting papped. Um, yeah. Because these reporters, I can't, I can't remember what paper it was for. It's probably for multiple, but basically caught her and Bertha being conveyed around the Avon on the gondola and printed pictures of it. Yeah. Oh, so actually that's not even the first time she becomes this sort of spectacle. So like before the Shakespeare drama, she and Bertha bought a pair of Shetland ponies for their carriage and they would take them out on a drive every day and sort of the paparazzi would come follow them around. Yeah. And for some reason that reminded me that um, actually just to pop back into the Shakespeare drama one more time... <laughs> this just is hilarious to me. Um, also reminds me a little bit of the Pickwick Papers. But during the whole Shakespeare drama, um, so the guy who runs the town newspaper is anti-Corelli. So Corelli decides to launch her own newspaper to spread like information about why she's pushing against this plan for the library. And then somebody else launches a newspaper just to sort of, like, respond ex specifically to that newspaper. So it's this weird sort of, like, cascading set of dueling newspapers that just, like, screams 19th century to me. Yeah. And then there's this weird one where... Um, well, there's, there's this weird section where someone says, oh, the reason she doesn't like the idea of this Carnegie Library is not just because it's going to be Carnegie and not Corelli, but it's because the local people are going to build it and she doesn't like them because they drink a little, because she thinks they drink too much beer. And it's... Yeah, it just gets really bizarre. It's a flame it's war. Like, it's literally a flame war. It's like no one is providing any kind of citation for why they think this. They're just like, yeah, here's why she doesn't like it. It's because she is this outsider and she doesn't like the local people are going to get work building it. And also she thinks you're all terrible beer drinkers. <laughs> yep, it's so weird. Anyway, remember at the top of the episode when I mentioned that Marie Corelli may have been bi? This is when we get to sort of the explanation behind that claim. So it's 1906. Corelli is... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, let me double check this math. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Corelli is 51 years old and she meets a man named Arthur Severn, who I think is about 10 years older than her. He's married, he has five children. But he's basically like a older, semi-successful, but not quite really successful version of her brother. And for some perverse reason, Marie is infatuated 
with this mrf -er. <laughs> Like, he's, um, he's such a, like, his, he's such a flirt, like, such an open, like, lazy flirt that his wife is just like, yeah, I know, he flirts with everyone in this sort of, like, has kind of just given up on doing anything about it. Um, and Marie sort of pulls him into several creative projects, including The Devil's Motor, which we mentioned last time. Yeah. Um, but she, like, by 1907, she's, like, sending him little love notes about, like, not being, not feeling, like, bound or obligated to the people that they're, like, partnered with. Um, so both Severn's wife and Bertha and Annie Davis, the secretary, they all know what's going on, and they're all just like, why, God, why? Well, and also, Marie's, like, pals with Seven's wife, Joan, isn't she? So Yeah, they all start, like, they all start out as friends, like, Bertha, uh, Severn, I, I don't know why I don't know his wife's name, is it just not listed, or if, uh, or did I, am I? No, it's Joan. Joan, okay, yeah, sorry. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah. So they're all friends at first, but then Severn starts flirting with Marie and she's just like head over heels because like her letters sort of make it clear that she feels needed by him because he's a lazy man child who like will take anything anyone gives him. <laughs> and she like her love language is giving people stuff, right? But like most of the people in her life are actual functioning human beings who are not entirely just needy selfish people and so she feels needed by this needy selfish person in a way that she doesn't by anyone else and yeah yeah it's just like the toxic pattern repeating itself here right i was gonna say i think your comparison to eric is really apt yeah it's like spookily i mean it's like clear from a distance i wonder if bertha thought so too you know it's like secretly like what the heck um, someone's got brother issues yeah, so this goes on for a number of years till they they do several projects together. Um, and their their last project is going to be like this sort of uh, this text on Shakespeare, sort of homage to Shakespeare that Marie's gonna write and Severn's gonna illustrate. Um, but their relationship falls apart, and so does the project. So yay, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Similar to Eric's death, like it's not necessarily a good thing, but it's the best thing that could have happened. Yeah. So, I mean, it, there's a lot of publication stuff that keeps going on. There's sort of a lot of day-to-day -day life, but um, sort of skipping ahead to the next especially notable event, um, it's 1912. Um, this is actually the second time something like this happens. W.T. Stead, uh, who's a famous reviewer and critic, uh, calls on Marie at Masoncroft, and he he's he's one of the sort of leaders of the persecution of Corelli in the press for a long period of time, and he he just stops by to apologize and ask for her forgiveness. Apparently, um, well timed. Yeah, one of the times she was traveling in Europe, a different reviewer and critic meets her in person. And he is one of the people who were sort of anti-Corelli in the press, too. And he and his wife become really good friends with her. And then he dies. It's like a curse. Uh, so this is why I think it's really striking. 
Yeah, yeah. So W.T. said, like, shortly after uh, this visit, he um, embarks on the maiden voyage of the SS Titanic. So um, I, uh, he does not survive I that. I didn't know that he'd been on yeah. that. But... Neither did I. No, it's fascinating. So yeah, um, yeah. critics who critics who uh, apologize for their horribleness and befriend Corelli are cursed to die shortly thereafter, apparently, based on this case study of two. <laughs> um, Solid scientific evidence. Not to make light of his death, but... Um, no, obviously, it's yeah. a huge tragedy. It's just a strange coincidence. Yeah. Uh, in brighter news, 1912 is also the year that Marie... Uh, buys her first car. It's a it's a Daimler, and um, she has it made with a custom seat for her dog Czar, who's still alive at this point, um, so he can look out the window while they're being driven around. Yeah, so this is you know that's a, that's two years after The Devil's Motor is published, where she's like, motor cars are. Um, actually, this is The Devil's Motor is basically yeah. It's not the only book in which she sort of says cars are horrible and bad. And if you think about it, um, you know, cars are to society what trains were. They speed everything up. They radically change life. And so, of course, people are going to be sort of, like, hesitant about them. Yeah, it's always the way with technology, isn't it? People fear it when they don't fully understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she gets this little seat made for Zara, I presume, because... Um... Yorkshire Terriers are so little that he needs a little help to see out the window, mm-hmm. which is adorable. It really is. But they don't get the uh, gardener to drive the car like they did the gondola. <laughs> that poor gardener. <laughs> and I probably refused. And no, you've got to get a proper chauffeur. Yeah. Speaking of the gardener, and just to skip ahead a little bit, um, he is drafted. I don't know if it works that way uh, in the UK. But World War II is right around the corner, right? So he um, is he Sorry. joins the war effort and um, yeah, first first World War, yeah, no, it's... yeah, World War One, yep. Sorry, my is that yeah? It's usually yeah. me. So. <laughs> yeah, so World War One is right around the corner, and Eric Chandler, the gardener slash gondolier, joins the war effort, and um, Corelli uh, has the gondola stored. Um, until his return. Um, unfortunately, though, he does not return. Oh. Yeah. Um, as many as many people, Corelli, as many women did, Corelli yeah. um, tried to be as supportive as she could of the war effort, and she wrote a book during this period called My Little Bit, uh, which is a kind of bunch of <laughs> war, war propaganda. But she was... Um, previously really kind of outspokenly anti-war during the Boer War. Um, so it's kind of this weird complex position where I think it was really personal to her um, since her gardener was a casualty of war. And um, Yeah, I think that's kind of... Um, well, it's interesting to think about the, uh, I guess, the framing of war and why wars break out because we'll, the First World War is really framed around this... Um, you know, Archduke Ferdinand being shot and having to make something. I don't know, this is my conception of, as someone who doesn't necessarily study war, but there's this idea that the two world wars were um, on the part of, you know, 
Britain and our allies was kind of a noble war because you have to protect other people from, well, in both cases, Germany. But um, And then the Boer War is more about maintaining the empire. So I can see why she would potentially be pro-one and anti yeah. the other. And like you said, maybe if um, with Chandler dying one of them, she has to feel like that was for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I guess really things don't go back uphill from here. Um, it's only a few short years later in January of 1924 that Curly has a heart attack and she survives the heart attack um, and lives for a few more months, but she dies at the age of 69 on Easter Monday, the 21st of April, uh, 1924. Fittingly, I think, I think Marie would, I think Corelli would have approved of this. Um, her funeral is postponed until after the Shakespeare birthday celebrations on the 23rd. Um, yeah, that's an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah, I think as an ardent supporter and and champion of Shakespeare's legacy, mm. she would have felt like that was a fitting sort of last thing that she could do on his behalf because her funeral was very, very well attended. Um, it included a number of famous and like and uh, uh, well-regarded people, including the Shakespearean scholar Sir Sidney Lee. Um, I'm trying to look for oh, Archibald Flower, her old nemesis, uh, her doctor. Which is pretty fitting. Right? So she's buried in the main cemetery of Stratford-upon-Avon, close to the entrance on Evesham Road, under a white marble monument bearing her name and a verse from one of her poems. Um, Bertha orders her this white marble angel, which is still there today, but has recently been damaged by, by vandals. Um... She orders this white marble angel from Italy and has it set over her tomb with, uh, to sort of watch over her um, figuratively. You can see pictures of that. Yeah, you can see pictures of, of that on um, Nick Birch's Marie Corelli blog, which we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, it is. It's very Corelli. Um, it's a perfect way to honor her, I think. Bertha would have known. <laughs> She did know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because apparently, cause Bertha was, um, she didn't go to the funeral, did she? She was too bereft, I guess. Yeah. Corelli left her entire estate to Bertha uh, for her lifetime. And, and that's a common uh, way to bequeath an estate to somebody. A lot of people just had a life interest. Um, at which point on Bertha's death, it was to revert to... I guess it's a trust in perpetuity for those f- visiting Stratford. So it's sort of like a um, a national heritage site, right? Just by her, by her will's terms. Um, according to Nick Birch, Bertha published uh, Corelli's last two books uh, in the year after her death, 1925. Those books are Open Confessions and Poems. And she also began sort of working through her grief by writing the memoirs of Marie Corelli, which uh, we got to look at back in November and talked about a bit in uh, part one. Yeah. Interestingly, Bertha decides to throw a memorial party for Corelli two years. No, wait, that's... 
three years, years yeah. after Corelli's death um, at Mason Croft. Yeah. A uh, hundred people attend. And um, in a kind of Queen Victoria-esque move, Bertha has kept the house exactly as Corelli left it. Um, even to like airing Corelli's rooms on a daily basis and bringing him flowers. And I guess I should point out that that might sound strange to modern ears that they're Corelli's rooms and not Bertha's. And it's likely that Bertha had her own rooms for a number of reasons. Um, even married couples would often have their own suites of rooms. Um, yeah. But definitely they didn't want to like tip their hand by openly just both sharing the same set of rooms, right? So, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of reasons why you would have had it. But also, yeah, most actually married people would have had separate rooms anyway or you know those were who were wealthy enough to do so yeah so it takes Bertha six years to complete her memoirs um but she finally publishes them in 1930 and you would think that's a great place to stop this episode (laughs) not so soon insert ghostly sounds here we need to talk about something else (laughs) yeah Nothing can stop Corelli, not even death. So in her dissertation on Marie Corelli, Robin Hallam uh, notes that in 1933, a woman named Dorothy Agnes published a book titled The Voice of Marie Corelli, Fragments from the Immortal Garden, claiming it was written under the influence of Corelli's spirit. So more ghosty sounds. (laughs) As Hallam explains, this was not the last book this is not the only book that was ostensibly communicated to a living mortal by Corelli's scribbling ghost. Um, a book called Paulus Antonius, a tale of ancient Rome, being a true story of some second century incarnation by Marie Corelli in spirit through the hand of Marie Elfram, was published in 1931. A woman named Mrs. Pinagar wrote a book called The Great Awakening, which was about spiritualism, and she claimed to have been instructed in a dream by Marie Corelli to buy the author's own writing table, which she did. Um, So she was maybe not claiming that the book was dictated to her by Corelli, but that she was sort of like influenced by the power of Corelli's writing table. (laughs) I was going to say, next time time I make a kind of frivolous purchase, I might be like, well, the ghost of Marie Corelli told me to do it in a dream. It's a plausible excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, two more books, actually, were kind of in this weird category. One called Judith by Blanche A. Webb um, was supposedly dictated by the spirit of Marie Corelli and was published in 1950. And finally, a self-help book titled No Matter was published in 1969 by a man named Cyril Wilde, who, quote, asserts guidance from Marie Corelli and a Tibetan monk named Lalassil. That's so, he- so much later than I would have expected. Like, right? It all sounds like very, like, fantasy ecla shenanigans, but it's actually happening that late. <laughs> 1969. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, the story does not end with these publications, however. In 1969, the Cook sisters, Ida and Louise, held a seance in which they claimed to speak with Marie Corelli and other spirits. Supposedly, Corelli offered her assistance with Louise's spiritual writing and shared her admiration for the sisters' home circle before departing the seance. Um, That's nice. Yeah. But it's highly unlikely even if you believe in ghosts and their ability to communicate, that Corelli was involved with any of these publications. Um, While she was still alive, it's sad that I have to clarify this, uh, she wrote a... (laughs) It's unclear if this is a book. I think it must have been an article. She wrote an article titled Spiritualism, an Exposure of Automatic Writing in the Daily Telegraph, and it was published on February 10th of 1920. So this is something she wrote toward the end of her life that is sort of anti-spiritualism. It's quite funny. Yeah, I imagine that must have been an article because to the best of my knowledge, the Telegraph has never carried, you know, like serialized fiction. So, yeah, it sounds like... Yeah, and the 20s are a little late for yeah, that anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, even if Corelli is out there bopping around as a ghost, sitting in on seances... She would probably be, like, working to sort of disprove all of these guys instead of collaborating with them. I feel like, yeah, I feel like if it were possible, she would deliberately avoid communicating with anyone just because she doesn't want to disprove what she said. Yeah. She's not going around going, oh, your your house is nice. Mrs. Cook. Given... Yeah, given all the trouble that she had with the press, she wouldn't want to have given them any reason to call her on sort of contradictoriness. <laughs> yeah. Um, it also doesn't seem quite right to end this episode without talking about what became of Bertha and Masoncroft and Crelly's estate. So just a few notes. I think it's quite nice as well to kind of, obviously we started by talking about Bertha. Yeah. It's quite nice to come full circle and just finish. Yeah. With Bertha. Yeah. So just a few notes, um, and these are uh, thanks to Nick Birch's uh, website yet again. So in 1938, the royalties from Corelli's work are slowly dwindling away, and Bertha, who is 84, is finding it hard to make ends meet. In 1940, Brentnell and Watt see no alternative but to let Mason Croft, but Bertha is resolute in following Marie Corelli's wishes. The butler, Alfred Bridges, is in poor health, but the two maids, Augusta Threadgold and Bella Barber, stay on at the house, determined to keep Corelli's memory alive. By 1941, the only income that uh, Bertha is getting is £29 of royalties, which uh, was about £1,300 when uh, Nick Birch put this website together, so that's in the last... uh, That's in 2013, so still roughly close um and that year bertha also passed away uh the 20th of november 1941 at the age of 87 and she was buried next to corelli this means that now the courts have to figure out um uh what's happening to mason croft and so the um the maid bella barber is paid at one pound a week to keep looking after the house until everything gets kind of sorted out. In 1943, um, 
there aren't enough funds to sustain the estate and are under pressure during wartime. Obviously, the Second World War has commenced in 1939. Um, so with that wartime pressure, they have to allow Mason Croft to be requisitioned. So the trustees are forced to apply to the courts to ask what to do. In July, the courts decide that Corelli's will is null and void because the trust had been set up in part to benefit foreigners, which is super chill of them. So much fun. So the will basically says that foreign writers will apply to the Society of Authors to be able to stay at Masoncroft and the lovely British Treasury says that is null and void because it can't be set up to benefit foreigners. Um, the Treasury solicitor determines that there's insufficient in income so the contents of the house can be sold. So over three days in October of 1943, the entire contents of Masoncroft, so all of that furniture that they've carefully collected, their effects, their books and their mementos, everything that's left of Crowley's life and home are sold at super cheap prices. Uh, after paying any debts, outstanding liabilities and taxes, £4,500 is raised from that sale and then the Air Ministry take over the house. So in 1945, in the aftermath of this rummage cell of Bertha and Crowley's lives, um, the solicitors try to look for people who uh, are claimants to the estate. Some people come forward, but none of them are legit. And so in the absence of any heirs, because, duh, <laughs> a ruling is made in favor of the crown as the beneficiary... <laughs> Um, so the British Council are installed at Mason Croft. Until 1951. Um, in 1951, the University of Birmingham buys Mason Croft and establishes the Shakespeare Institute in the building. Because Stratford-upon-Avon isn't a million miles from Birmingham. I can probably try and figure it out, but it's... Um, there's a reason a lot of cartoons would depict Shakespeare as having a Birmingham accent. yeah. Well, and actually, Birmingham, um, people there were, like, during Corelli's lifetime, pretty much, they were a lot more into her than the people in Stratford. So during the whole Shakespeare kerfuffle, um, a lot of the newspapers in Birmingham took her side of the issue, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah, it's like 40 miles so in 1953, uh, Corelli's literary agents, A.P. Watt and Son, reluctantly give up the copyright of Corelli's work. Uh, Methuen buys it for the, from them for £750. And in 1955, the residuary of Corelli's estate, which is a sum of £10,579, or about £243,000 as of, was it 2013? is paid to the Commissioners for Crown Lands. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so basically the British government, again, decide that they're going to have all the money because they haven't been able to find anyone. Uh, and so just a little piece of trivia, because recently there was an article titled She Outsold Dickens, So Why Don't We Know Her Name? published, um, and it made the rounds on Twitter. Uh, and a bunch of people who are familiar with Corelli were like, yeah, we do know her name. Um, so a Twitter user named Ellen called Ellen Degenerate or at Merman Not 
notes that the Thai translation of Marie Corelli's Vendetta was the first English novel translated in Thailand, and it was called Kwam Phaya Bat um, by Mei Wan. And so it was sort of adapted to be set in Bangkok, which is really cool. And uh, apparently this led to... I don't know if it's the first Thai novel. This is what this Twitter user is claiming. If you know listeners, let us know. Um, but apparently there was sort of like a spin-off of Vendetta. An entirely original novel called Unvendetta by Kru Liam. Uh, it was, quote, an adaptation as well as a challenge to Corelli's text by denying that the ties won't be as vengeful as Corelli's characters. So... Yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and kind of a, a a brief example of sort of the way that her her works made their way out into the world. Um, she was popular way beyond just sort of the metropole or just, just England and the UK. In fact, I found like lots of early editions of her work on the west coast of the United States when I was in Oregon. Um, like a lot of them. So... I, I was so impressed by them. Um, yeah, listeners, Courtney showed me her collection. It's incredible. And then told me, how much did you say you, you didn't spend more than... Oh, they were all under $4. Dollars. Yeah, I was amazed yeah. by that. Mm-hmm. And extremely impressed. It's really cool. I'll, I'll post some pictures of my collection. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, it's always interesting when those kind of articles go around because it's kind of... Um, well, it's similar to the thing I was talking about in our showcase episode, where exactly as you were saying, people do know her name. It's just maybe not in the uh, wider public. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole premise of our podcast. We're not saying scholars don't know about the authors we talk about. In fact, the only reason we're talking about them in many cases is because scholars have written about them. It's just that in a wider reading public, chances are you've heard of Charles Dickens, but not Marie Corelli. Yeah, and I think a lot of, um, I would be really happy for people to prove me wrong, but a lot of the times when I speak to people, unless they have a specific interest in Victorian literature, Dickens really is the only person they've heard of. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is what we're trying to change. But. Yeah, so that's the conclusion of our coverage of the life of Murray Corelli. What we have lined up for you, which I'm really excited about, is I'm going to, I don't know whether Courtney's going to be able to be involved in this, but I'm going to have a conversation with my good friend Joe Turner, who is researching Corelli and has, as I mentioned earlier, her theory has loads of interesting things to say about it. So I'll ask her to set us right on anything that we might have uh, got a little bit wrong and tell us why she thinks Corelli is really interesting. Yes. It's going to be so exciting. And of course, we will have a episode about Corelli's writing uh, with an example of her writing coming up as well. So as always, thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. I think we have one last thing to ask before yes. we go. Possibly. Yes. Possibly. Hi listeners, it's Courtney popping back in to remind you to please, please, please take a few minutes to complete our survey at tinyurl.com slash Victorian Scribblers. 
Now that we're almost both done with graduate school, we're trying to up our game and be more strategic about bringing you the content you love. But to do that, we need to hear from you about what's working, what's not working, and what you hope to hear from us next. The survey only takes about 20 minutes, and it helps us out a whole lot. Once again, that's tinyurl.com slash Victorian Scribblers. We'll be running the survey until December 31st, 2019. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com slash support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. Music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. <laughs>